Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm Dr. David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine and creator of drjockers.com, and I'm the host of this podcast. I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself, and on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. One thing everyone needs are electrolytes. This includes sodium, potassium, and magnesium, which all play an important role in energy production. A lot of the fatigue and brain fog that people are experiencing is actually due to low electrolytes. And then when you sweat, or if you adopt a low-carb diet or practice intermittent fasting, your electrolyte needs actually increase. If electrolytes aren't replaced, it's common to experience headaches, muscle cramps, and fatigue. Now, a lot of people will go out and they'll find a sports drink, but the average sports drink has 29 grams of sugar. That's a ton of sugar. And they actually don't have uh, key science-backed ratios of electrolytes. That's why I wanted to introduce you to my friends over at Element, spelled L-M-N-T. It's a healthy alternative because it's a tasty electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means a lot of electrolytes with no sugar. Element is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited for those following a keto, low-carb, or paleo diet. Element contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio with none of the junk, no sugar, coloring, artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, just electrolytes and stevia. As a member of our community, Element has a very special offer for you. You can get a free sample pack with any order on their site. Now, in the sample pack, you get different flavors. You get some amazing flavors. I really like the citrus, raspberry, watermelon. They've got a great orange salt. And they also have an unflavored, if you don't want any sort of flavoring, any sort of stevia. Now, this is a perfect order or perfect offer for anyone who's interested in trying all the flavors, or if you just want to introduce a friend to Element. And you can get them here by going to drinklmnt.com forward slash drjockers. Again, that's the only site you can get this special offer and get the free sample pack with any order that you make. Just go to drink lmnt.com forward slash drjockers today. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to another great Q&A podcast. Got a lot of really good questions from you guys. We're going to be answering questions about how to do intermittent fasting when you're in the postmenopausal period. We've had questions about that. How to use binders like zeolite and charcoal if there's certain conditions that you got to be aware of with using binders. We're going to talk about candida, about SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, CFO, or small intestinal fungal overgrowth. And uh, we're also going to answer a question about erythritol in a recent study, uh, potentially linking erythritol with, with, um, with negative health outcomes. So stay tuned. That'll be our last question. So stay tuned if you're interested to know more about that. And joining me today is Dr. Yvonne. She is a naturopath and uh, just an incredible uh, resource that we have here at drjockers.com. She works with people all around the world, does uh, virtual consults via phone or video, and helps people navigate their health journeys and get better health results. She looks at labs, and she's uh, extremely well-credentialed and well-trained, 
and um, it's helping people all around the world. So Dr. Yvonne, thanks so much for joining us. Good morning, Dr. Jockers. Thank you so much for inviting me today. So I'm excited to, to be part of this question and answer session. So shall we get started? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Anyway, this is so funny. The, the screaming sardine, that made me laugh. So anyway, screaming sardine asked this question. How should an older woman who is postmenopausal practice intermittent fasting? That's so, a wonderful, excellent question. Yeah, really good question. So screaming sardine right off the bat, when <laughs> I think about sardines, I think omega-3s, I think calcium, magnesium, because you get the, like, the little bones in there. You just want to make sure with sardines that I know this is off the cuff, but you know I heard <laughs> sardines, so this is key. You want to make sure that you don't get them in some sort of like vegetable oil. Sometimes, you know, they get them in the tin cans and they're with soybean oil or canola oil. Olive oil is okay or just in the water, right? That works. Um, in fact, that's probably the best bet because we don't even know the quality of the olive oil, right? Uh, that's that's in the tin can. If you get it in olive oil, it's probably fine, but we're never, never fully sure. So I recommend getting it in the water. And, uh, you know, again, great, great food source, sardines. So getting back to her question there, postmenopausal. So obviously, you know, there's a way of doing intermittent fasting that females need to be aware of when it comes to their menstrual cycle. You know, when it, and, and when we look at a menstrual cycle, day one is the first day of menses. Day 14 would be ovulation when they're most fertile. Um, and so when we think about that, there's certain hormones that peak at certain times. And so early on in the menstrual cycle, estrogen starting to rise, and that's actually a really good time to go low carb and do intermittent fasting. That's good. By ovulation, you want to, um, you, you, you don't want to have a tight eating window. You want to have a larger eating window. You need more nutrients during that period of time. And that kind of tells your body that food is abundant during that, that season. And, and feast famine cycling is just a really important thing for our hormones. We know that intermittent fasting helps improve hormone sensitivity, like insulin sensitivity, for example, and has a lot to do with detoxification, autophagy, cleansing the body. There's a lot of great benefits to it, but if we stay in kind of this tight intermittent fast too long, we're not going to get the right hormonal surges that are going to allow us to, you know, for a woman to be more fertile and to feel really good and comfortable as she's kind of going through these, uh, as she's going through her full menstrual cycle. So again, around ovulation, so ovulation is usually day 14. So usually around day 12 to let's say day 15 or so, somewhere in that frame, you know, even to be cautious, a lot of times I'll say day 11, um, you know, that's when you want to eat more carbohydrates, more protein, less uh, do less intermittent fasting, maybe a 12 or 14 hour overnight fast is good. But outside of that, you don't need to tighten your eating window for, for those three or four days. And then after ovulation, so let's say day 16 or so, then you can go ahead and, and you can do intermittent fasting again, low carb for, for several days up until the last week of your menstrual cycle. So roughly around day 21, that is when you want to, again, go back into more of a feasting period, consuming a lot, you know, more carbohydrates, you know, not, not necessarily following a very low carbohydrate diet, um, you know, just eating more in general and also eating uh, with a larger eating window. So instead of, you know, if you're tightening it to 16 or 18 hours, 
bring it back out to, you know, 10, 12 hour eating window uh, to get those calories in. And a lot of women notice that they just have more cravings that last week before they menstruate as well. And that's because progesterone, you really need a lot of progesterone there. We know cortisol is the, in a sense, the antagonist to progesterone. And so when you're fasting, you tend to have an elevation in cortisol. It's a glucocorticoid to help raise your blood sugar. And that will reduce the amount of progesterone that your body's producing. And therefore, you are going to be more susceptible to PMS-like symptoms and having more issues around menstruation. Now, that doesn't apply to every woman. Some women are able to do intermittent fasting their whole cycle and they feel great, right? But I would say the majority of women, that's going to uh, work out you know, better for them. Now, of course, postmenopausal, well, there's no menstrual cycle, right? So what do they do? Well, historically, women used to, the majority of women would ovulate at the full moon. So the full moon comes out, majority of women would normally ovulate. So day 14 would roughly be around the same time as the full moon. And, you know, moon cycle is basically the same as like a menstrual cycle. Normally, it's supposed to be around a 28-day cycle. So the new moon, where there's no moon in the sky, usually, um, you know, would be around the time of menstruation. And so we know the moon impacts a lot of things. It impacts, you know, the tide and the ocean and, uh, you know, just impacts so many things on us, right? And so it, it would make sense that it would also impact, um, you know, the menstrual cycle. So when you ovulate at the uh, full moon, that's actually called a white moon cycle. And there are some women, a smaller percentage that tended to historically menstruate at the full moon. They call that the red moon cycle. So not everyone's on the same cycle, but most women would fall into this white moon cycle. So with postmenopausal women, usually if they just follow that, the moon cycle and kind of set up their nutrition around that, that can very much, you know, they can get great results that way. So, you know, if you think about it again, full moon being day 14, new moon being day one, right, of your menstrual cycle, and you set it up just the way that I talked about, right, where it's kind of like that last week before the full moon, you're eating more carbohydrates, larger eating window, and then, um, you know, basically the, or sorry, last week before the new moon, you would do that, and then a few days before the full moon you would do that as well. And then outside of that, you go more into a lower carbohydrate diet. You can do more intermittent fasting and follow it that way. So that's a good strategy. One other good strategy is, you know, and this is kind of a little bit easier to follow is do something a lot, lot what we call a 5-1-1, where you do five days, lower carbohydrate in a good eating window, right? Comfortable eating window for you that, you know, if you're able to get that 16-8, Right? A lot of women do really, really well in that, where they're eating their meals in an eight-hour eating window, uh, you know, so three meals, let's say, in an eight-hour eating window, 16-hour fasting window, and then one day a week, you know, you don't have an eating window, right? You just, you keep it, you know, maybe 12 hours or something like that. You're, you're, it's a feast day, lar larger amount of carbohydrates uh, during that period of time, and then one day a week where you're doing a tighter fast, maybe a 20-hour or, or even up to a 24-hour fast, going maybe one meal a day, right? Uh, one day a week. And for a lot of women, they do really well on that sort of strategy when they're in that postmenopausal state. So you kind of have to experiment a little bit, see what works best for you. Of course, if you're very new to intermittent fasting, or if you've had uh, a negative experience in the past, then just kind of like exercise, you don't want to like go full throttle, you want to kind of 
gradually lean into it, um, you know, and build up your metabolic flexibility and your, your metabolic fitness, right? We always recommend eating a lot of protein when you do eat healthy fats, really getting your blood sugar more stable with diet, and then starting to kind of compress that eating window until you find a comfortable range for yourself. Thank you, Dr. Jockers. That was wonderful. I really love the way you explain menstruating women and how that you can do the same, uh, use a similar strategies with postmenopausal. That helps a lot, you know, to have that visual. And I also love the fact that, you know, it's not for everyone, but who would like to do it, they can experiment and try different strategies and see what works. Because at the end of the day, we really want to do what supports our body. So that is so wonderful. And, yeah, you know, yeah. another no. thing that postmenopausal women yeah. are, lo you know, are looking is that a lot of times in that stage, you know, women tend to gain more weight. And so that is a big concern. And another concern is also cognitive ability, maybe, you know, kind of like, oh, I start thinking that, uh, you know, I'm not remembering that kind of thing. And intermittent fasting is wonderful to support the brain. So that's another reason, not only for weight, but to support your brain. And so I encourage anyone who would like to have, uh, you know, two great benefits, weight and, and cognitive um, support, that is awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Intermittent fasting has a lot of great benefits. I really think about it like exercise. You know, exercise is going to be beneficial for most people. Um, but again, if they go full throttle right off the bat, not going to be healthy. And so it's something that you kind of have to gradually move into, right? Improving your movement, right? Or possibly doing a resistance training and then kind of finding the right dose for you. And that's really the key, the right dose and the right recovery period for you. And that's, that's the same with fasting. Yes. And one, one thing that I would like to mention is that there's some women or men in general who would have to get into intermittent fasting kind of slowly, especially if you go through hypoglycemia periods, that would be like disastrous if you just jump into intermittent fasting. So the best strategy, like you mentioned, is just like, you know, think about a window of time and just shrink it and just, you know, do it at your own rate. And then you can mix and match like five days, two days or however, but it is very important that you are aware that hypoglycemic mm. people just be a little bit more conscious. Yeah, that's super key. If you're having hypoglycemic episodes, you shouldn't do it until you're able to get over that. And the way that you get over that is you get rid of the processed kind of simple carbohydrates and processed foods, right? That the, These high glycemic impact foods, get rid of those, really prioritize protein, getting 30 to 40 grams of high quality protein every time that you eat. Um, you know, combining that with some healthy fats, things like extra virgin olive oil, avocados, fiber from, you know, vegetables, fruit and vegetables. Um, and if you do that, you know, after about a week or so, you're going to notice that your blood sugar is a lot more stable. You're going to have more stability there with your blood sugar, keeping stress under control, really prioritizing sleep, also super important. Then once you do that and you're not noticing those hypoglycemic reactions, you're able to kind of go longer periods of time. Let's say you eat at 8 a.m., you're able to go until 12, one o'clock and then lunch comes and you're not even like really feeling hungry. It's like, you know what? I probably could go if I wanted to another hour or so. That's kind of at the point where, you know, you're starting, you're ready to start doing some intermittent fasting and compressing that eating window. So that's a really good point, Dr. Yvonne. 
I just wanted to interrupt this podcast to tell you about one of my favorite supplements. It's called curcumin gold. You guys know I'm a huge advocate of turmeric, this Indian spice and the different polyphenols and compounds in there that help reduce inflammation. The most well-studied is curcumin. Curcumin has been shown to outperform your typical non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen, Advil, and Tylenol in many different studies by reducing pain and inflammation without the harmful side effects. And what I love about the curcumin gold is that it contains turmeric curcumin extract. It contains vegan omega-3s made from algae, the long chain uh, omega-3 called DHA, which is so powerful for the brain, so powerful for heart health and reducing inflammation. It also has ginger oil. Those carefully selected ingredients support healthy joint function and address the root cause of inflammation within your body. Now, trust me when I say you won't find anything else on the market quite like this. In fact, my friends over at Purality Health have a patented formula that utilizes something called micell liposomal technology, which delivers nutrients directly into your bloodstream. And it's proven to be 800% more efficient than traditional supplements. Even better, it's backed by a 180-day money-back guarantee. And today, we have a 30% off coupon just for you. Visit PurityHealth.com. Use the coupon DRJ to access 30% off today. Great. So let's see what Mary is a question. Mary on Instagram says, what herbs, diet strategies, and other things are helpful for killing candida overgrowth? Mm, yeah, candida. So we see a lot of people that have fungal overgrowth and candida is a species of you know, fungus or yeast that's in our system. And, and it's normal, natural. We all have some level of candida albicans. Um, and then there's other candida species as well. It's the most common one in our system. And to some degree, you know, there's there could be potential health benefits to having it when it's in balance. However, we also know that candida releases acetaldehyde as well as glial toxin, which are both damaging, particularly they're neurotoxic, right? So they'll, they'll damage the brain. So when candida grows out of control compared to the other microbial organisms in the system, and we get an overgrowth, we're going to have damage. You know, we're, it's obviously going to cause more inflammation in our system. And a lot of people notice that they get, they have brain fog, that uh, trouble concentrating, maybe trouble sleeping, more anxiety, uh, you know, skin rashes is another common one, right? So they, they may notice, you know, a lot of different uh, unwanted health results, unwanted health issues. And, you know, one of the most common reasons why people will get candida overgrowth is overuse of antibiotics or drinking, for example, unfiltered tap water, which has chlorine, which kills good bacteria, but doesn't affect chlorine, uh, uh, candida. So the candida has an environment where it can grow. Same with antibiotics or consuming a lot of food that has antibiotics. For example, um, non-organic dairy, has the, the milk, it's going to have traces of antibiotics that the cows that they were, the cows were given. Same with non-organic meat. This is why we're huge advocates of doing your best to consume organic grass-fed animal products because we don't want these hormones and antibiotics and things like that that can alter our gut microflora and cause a rise of something like candida in our system. So that those can be some of the the root cause factors there. Now, herbs that can be beneficial, coconut oil. Well, it's not really an herb, but 
Coconut oil itself has lauric acid, which turns into monolaurin in our system, which breaks down the cell wall of candida albicans. So that can be very helpful. Um, some other good ones, oregano, garlic can bo both be very beneficial as well. I know, Dr. Yvonne, you use uh, some different herbs as well. So what are some of your favorites for candida? Grapeseed extract, gold seal, ginger, and garlic. And you know, the wonderful thing about using herbs is that you can incorporate it into your cooking. So yeah. even if you don't have, in order to prevent, it's always better to prevent having an issue. But one way of staying on top of things is just using a lot of herbs to to cook and prepare your your meals and your foods, or even in, you know, drinks, um, you know, like garlic is so wonderful. Not garlic, I'm sorry, ginger. It just has a really nice taste with lemon. And, you know, you can just use different ways of incorporating uh, different foods that and, and herbs that will help you with uh, candida overgrowth. Um, and, you know, I love the fact that you mentioned that um, there are other ways when people think about candida overgrowth, many people know that having a processed diet is terrible and high sugar. But a lot of people don't think that um, non-organic meats or meats in general that use hormones and uh, they're not organic have, a, I'm sorry, antibiotics, it can become an issue because now we're consuming those antibiotics. And so it's very important for us to be aware of those hidden places where this can be found. So, uh, yeah, so that's one another reason why organic foods and knowing where your food source is coming from is important to be aware of. Yeah, for sure. And then, you know, in general, we know that candida also loves, you know, simple, easy sources of glucose. So a lot of you know, obviously taking out processed foods, going on a lower carbohydrate diet has been shown to be beneficial for uh, people trying to reduce candida. Okay. But you also do want some healthy fibers because candida really doesn't do much with fiber, but other healthy gut microbes will, will, will have benefit from fiber. So that can be key. A good tea as well as paw de arco. Paw de arco mm -hmm. comes from tree bark. Um, and that has been shown, you know, a lot of these plants, right? Oregano, uh, garlic, potiarco. These, these plants, they are trying to defend themselves from fungal overgrowth, right? That fungus is one of their main predators. And so they're, they're releasing and, and creating compounds that are antifungal. And so that's why they're able to break these things down. And when we consume them, we, we confer those benefits, and uh, it's it's able to help uh, help reduce the candida, you know, overgrowth or the fungal overgrowth in our system, and that's key. It's we're really just trying to give our immune system a hand, and so these herbs will help give our immune system a hand. They also can support the immune system. They can help raise up certain white blood cells and help Im improve the overall immune balance and the immune efficiency in our system. And that's, you know, it goes back to other nutrients. You know, if you're zinc deficient, if you're vitamin D deficient, okay, it's going to be harder for you to get rid of candida. So you do want to test your vitamin D, test your zinc levels, right? You want to look at some of these key nutrients, vitamin A. So these are all very key in order to make sure your immune system is working well. So no herbs themselves are going to get rid of candida, but they're going to help support your body's natural immune system. When, you're, when your immune system is working well, it's going to help uh, support 
kind of a, a natural balance in your gut ecosystem. And so that's really what we're trying to accomplish there. Perfect. So we know that diet is important. We know that we can use some herbs too with that. And how, how about lifestyle strategies? You mentioned that it's very important to have our, a healthy immune system to be able to, you know, overcome this. So sleep is important. Exercise is important. And one thing that is so important is managing your stress. Because stress makes you very acidic, and acidic is the perfect terrain for any kind of pathogen to thrive. So another strategy is just make sure that you are doing, you know, whatever it would take for you to manage stress better and sleep and exercise and, you know, all those good things that are, 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 are good for our general health. Yeah, super important. Yeah. And when you mentioned stress makes us acidic, what I think about there is, you know, when we have when we have more stress, we're elevating cortisol, right? And cortisol is what we call a glucocorticoid, meaning its job is to elevate blood glucose. We're elevating blood glucose. We're telling the body we need to produce energy through glycolysis, not through beta oxidation of fatty acids. And so as a byproduct of glycolysis, we produce a lot of lactic acid in our system and our body's got to buffer that. So the more stress we're under, in a sense, we're, we're turning our body into a sugar burner and away from fat burning. And that creates an environment that's ripe for more pathogens. We should only be sugar burning for short periods of time throughout the day, short bouts of stress, exercise. You know, it's, a, it's advantageous for us to burn sugar for those, for performance in a sense. But for the most part, we should be burning fat as our primary fuel source. And so stress really throws us out of that. So it's super key. So yeah, good sleep. One other thing I would add is regular good sun exposure. Sun exposure is so anti-inflammatory for the body. Um, you know, there, it's beneficial for the gut microbiome, the immune system, just so many great benefits to getting sun exposure. And it's something that oftentimes in, in you know, uh, the wellness culture is not talked about enough, getting good, high quality sun exposure on a regular basis. So yeah, I think that that really hits it with candida. It's a great uh, a great starter for candida. You know, if you're doing those things and you're still not seeing results, you definitely want to reach out to somebody like Dr. Yvonne so you can get some further testing and uh, you know and really dive deeper into why your immune system is not able to regulate candida. I see that with a lot of people, but they'll do a bunch of different herbals, antimicrobials, probiotics, a bunch of different things, lifestyle changes, and yet the infections keep coming back. And there's certain things that are holding them back from healing properly. That's when you want to reach out to somebody like Dr. Yvonne. Thank you. So let's go on to another question is from Stephanie on YouTube. I'm struggling with SIBO and SIFO and can't eat anything but protein and non-starchy veggies, or I get really bloated and inflamed. What should I do to heal? Yeah, so she mentioned SIBO and SIFO. So SIBO is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and SIFO is small intestinal fungal overgrowth. So basically our small intestine, we are always going to have some bacteria, some fungus in there, but it should be a much smaller amount than what we have in the large intestine. The large intestine should have way more of these microbes than the small intestine. However, if our digestive mechanics are not working right, different sphincters, for example, our ileocecal valve, which separates our large and small intestine if that's open. Um, or if, for example, we're not producing enough stomach acid, bile, pancreatic enzymes, then a lot of times the bacteria and the fungus can, can 
grow in the, you know, we can get larger amounts either moving up, moving from the large intestine up into the small intestine or coming from um, our stomach. And because we're not producing enough stomach acid, it's, it's uh, staying alive. It's not getting killed and moving into the small intestine. And also a lot of people that have gingivitis and uh, different oral infections, they tend to have a much greater propensity towards having SIBO and SIFO as well. So sometimes it can be coming from the dripping from the oral cavity as well. So what happens there is these bacteria and fungus start to break down and ferment food when it's in a larger undigested state, when it's not digested well enough. So it steals some of our nutrients. It also create, they create more inflammation because they release certain gases that are really toxic to the small intestinal environment and then create more bloating and more gas. And, um, you know, all of that obviously can impact brain function and impact inflammation throughout our whole system. And so it is a big issue. And what I always recommend is, you know, number one, looking at what your, what your digestive juice looks like. Are you producing enough stomach acid? Are you producing enough bile? So normally when we eat food, you know, we should eat it. We produce this really strong stomach acid that kills a good amount of the bacteria that's coming into our system, the, the, the overall microbes. However, there's still going to be some that are going to survive and they're going to move into the small intestine. The small intestine now produces bile. If you have a very acidic bolus, bolus means pre-digested food from the stomach moving into the small intestine, it triggers receptors in the small intestine to really throw out a bunch of bile. And the bile helps alkalize the environment because the small intestine needs more of an alkaline environment. And of course, the stomach is very acidic. And so now we get the alkaline environment, but bile also is not only a, an emulsifier that helps us digest fat and fat soluble nutrients, but it's also antimicrobial. So it helps kill off a lot of the microbes. And so when we get the right release there of, of stomach acid and bile, we are reducing the microbial content. And that's going to make for you know less of these microbes in the small intestinal environment, better overall digestion. So we've got to look at that make sure that we're optimizing stomach acid bile production. And then also make sure that things are moving through the ileocecal valve properly. Ileocecal valve is basically like right above your appendix. So it's on your lower right quadrant. And if you're noticing that you're getting like a lot of cramping in there, if you're constipated, um, you know, if you tend to have, you know, more tension in that area, you may have adhesions, you may have just kind of an open in that region. And so there's something called an ileocecal valve massage that you can you can do. <clears throat> I know I have a great video on YouTube on it and a great article that goes over it in detail. Um, and for a lot of people, they get benefit from doing that. So I think those are two just mechanical things to be looking at stomach acid bile production. And then, um, and then also again, that ileocecal valve, making sure that that's working right. Now she, she mentioned uh, diet as far as like what she's eating. And we find that a lot of times when people have bacterial overgrowth in their small intestine, they struggle with foods that normally are very healthy, right? For a lot of people, they'll say things like, it's like when I eat healthy, and I'm sure you've heard this, I feel worse when I eat oh. healthy. <laughs> people say that. Yes. Like I try to eat these All big the salads and I try to, I'm eating broccoli and it's like, I feel worse, right? And that's yeah. typically because these bacteria, these are very highly fermentable foods that normally when you have a healthier microbiome, they're going to break down properly in the small intestine and then provide a really good fuel source for the microbes in the large intestine. But if we have this overgrowth, and they could even be good bacteria that are in the small intestine, but they're in the wrong place, 
Now they're fermenting them too quick, causing problems. So oftentimes what we'll do is a lower, what we call a low FODMAP diet, where we actually take out a lot of these quote unquote healthier foods, broccoli, asparagus, right? These higher um, fermentable fibers, avocados even, um, for a period of time. You know, obviously we want to be able to add those foods back in, but, you know, in the short term, we'll do, you know, perhaps more protein and lower FODMAP types of, of foods. So sometimes we'll even do rice in some cases because it's more of a tolerable thing for somebody that's on a low FODMAP diet. Now, what we have to do is differentiate between, is this somebody that's overreacting to sugar processed foods, gluten, and they're having significant sensitivity to those types of things? Um, and if we just avoid those things for a period of time and then do things to help support the gut that they're going to be able to heal, right? And so we don't need to remove the broccoli, right? And, and those types of things, or have they already done those and they're still not seeing results and they're getting worse when they're eating these higher FODMAP vegetables. So we have to differentiate there and figure out what's going on. So, you know, in her case, you know, I mentioned a lot of things, uh, you know, basically what she's telling us is uh, when she's eating, she said non-starchy veggies uh, and protein, she's okay. But when she when she goes outside of that, that's when she starts to have the symptoms. So if she's eating a lot of non-starchy veggies and she feels okay, so that would be like broccoli would be considered a non-starchy veggie. Salad greens, that would be considered non-starchy veggies. If she's doing good with those and good with the protein, okay, it seems like we don't have as much of the over-fermentation going on. It seems like what she's saying is when she has more of the starch Okay, or goes outside of eating the protein-rich foods and the non-starchy veggies, so the more starches, perhaps grains, things like that, that's when she starts to have the issues. So she may have a gluten sensitivity, and she also may have more of like a fungal overgrowth, uh, because again, the fungus tends to like the, you know, the carbohydrates, right? Um, not necessarily the fiber. And so that just based on what she said, with the limited information we have, I'm thinking along those lines, right? And so then I would try to approach it from that perspective. What are, what are you getting from that question, Dr. Yvonne? Well, I, I, I totally agree with you. And it is something that needs to be investigated uh, to see what is really the issue. And a lot of times we just focus on the food and forget that lifestyle is very important. A lot of these individuals are under a lot of stress. And so again, stress will compromise your ability to digest, to produce hydrocolic acid and the, the cascade that follows that, the hydrocolic acid, the enzymes and the bile. So that would be something also to consider um, is, is this an issue for me? Is it, it, am I multitasking when I'm eating and I'm not creating a, an environment where I can actually digest my food? I mean, that is so, so important. So it could be that, you know, they're just not really breaking down their food. And so there's something to think about. And, and as, as far as healing, it's never one thing. You need to look at the whole picture. Is it the diet? Is it a compromised digestive system? Is, is it stress? Uh, is there some genetic vulnerability? And not necessarily, you know, like you were mentioning of uh, uh, gluten sensitivity. Sometimes it's not genetically, but it may be. Um, so there's a number of things that you need to address and look at in order to help someone that has 
SIBO or SIFO. Another thing is that once you have these conditions per se, it's something that you need to be on top of it. Normally, you know, you know, you have, there's a trigger, you know, it could be stress, it could be a food, and you were doing really, really well for a, a long period of time, and then boom, it happens. So it's something to, to be mindful of as well. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, there's a lot of different factors that can play in there, without a doubt. So I mean, again, based on the limited information that we had, it appears that she's okay with digesting non-starchy veggies, protein. So that's good. So it may be more of, you know, like a candida-like issue or small intestinal fungal overgrowth that really needs to be addressed there. But, you know, we also want to look at you know, pop, perhaps some digestive enzymes might be helpful as well, right? So that she may not be producing enough enzymes to break down some of the, uh, you know, amylase and other, you know, carbohydrate compounds when she's eating other foods outside of that. So there's a lot of different different areas that we can go in, but, you know, I definitely say getting a further evaluation would be very helpful. Um, so reaching out to somebody like Dr. Yvonne, it's just Dr. Yvonne, I-V-O-N-N-E at uh, drjockers.com, email her and uh, set up a consult so that way she can help customize a plan for you. Thank you, Dr. Jockers. I just wanted to interrupt this podcast to tell you about the importance of chlorophyll. Most people are not getting enough chlorophyll in their body. Chlorophyll is what's in, is what makes all green plants green. Chlorophyll helps absorb biophotons from the sun and turns them into energy in the plant. And chlorophyll, when humans consume it, has amazing detoxification and blood purifying benefits. Now, most people are just not able to get enough chlorophyll in their diet. Some people just don't even do well with lots of salads because of kind of the harder to digest fibers. And this is why I love a good super greens powder. My favorite is Paleo Valley's organic super greens, all organic ingredients. It's got some digestive enzymes, digestion supporting superfoods like ginger, lemon, and beet, no added sugars, and it doesn't contain any of the potentially gut irritating ingredients like cereal grasses, wheatgrass, barley, oat, or ryegrass, which all contain wheat germ, a gluten, WGA, which can irritate the gut. And so this is very well tolerated by people with chronic inflammatory conditions, gut issues, and it tastes great. Basically, you just take a scoop of this greens powder in water. That will provide a tremendous amount of polyphenol nutrients for your gut microbiome, chlorophyll, for your body's natural detoxification and blood purifying pursuits and uh, really help you get healthier and have more energy and better mental clarity. Guys, you can save 15% off the Paleo Valley Organic Super Greens or any of the Paleo Valley products. Just go to paleovalley.com forward slash jockers to save 15% off today. And we have a question from Claudia on YouTube. She says, I got my blood work done and my sodium was low uh, on the low end, 136, and my potassium was 4.5, which is on the high end. Both are normal, but not on a higher end. I'm constantly putting salt in everything, water, coffee, food, etc. What could be causing this imbalance? Yeah. And I, so I've seen this many times. And so, you know, typically what happens is, yeah, your sodium on blood work, normal range is somewhere around 137 to 143, even up to, you know, 145. 
And then potassium really should be between four and 4.5. So if you're looking at your blood work, you get a comprehensive metabolic panel, okay, which I'm, most people that have listened, if you've ever gotten blood work, you've probably gotten this. Um, it's, it's run by almost every general practitioner out there. And those won't necessarily be flagged high or low on there. You know, however, from a functional or optimal health range, there's a lot we can, we can take from the, that information. So if the sodium, like she said, I think she said 136. So it's on that lower end, potassium is 5, 4.5. So right on that kind of high end of normal. So there is a uh, adrenal hormone called aldosterone and aldosterone. What it does is it helps retain sodium and it can help excrete potassium. And so, um, you know, a lot of times blood pressure medications are targeting, uh, certain compounds that help elevate aldosterone in order to, in a sense, bring like a sodium, uh, bring sodium down. And, and with the idea that's bringing uh, blood pressure down. And so, in this case, we kind of have the opposite, that low sodium, which can cause uh, low blood pressure, right? And when you have low blood pressure, you tend to be dizzy. You have less get up and go, right? You can go from standing or sitting to standing and, and have what we call orthostatic hypotension, right? Where you're dizzy. Um, so more dizziness, less energy. You might have swelling in different areas. Uh, so with this, Typically, it's 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 a marker of adrenal hypofunction or HPA axis dysfunction, where your brain, your hypothalamus and your pituitary gland in your brain should be triggering uh, your adrenals to produce more cortisol, more more aldosterone. And so, if you're not producing enough of that aldosterone, you may not be again retaining the sodium the way that you're supposed to, and uh, and excreting potassium. And so, you may end up with that sort of an imbalance. And so, yeah, taking salt actually would be beneficial, you know, it, it, with, with that perspective. And it's not, you don't need to minimize potassium. Instead, what we have to really look at is why would you have the HPA axis dysfunction? Are you under a lot of stress? Are you not sleeping well? Are you having a lot of blue light exposure at night? Are you watching TV? Are you on your computer, your cell phone? Do you have light, a lot of lights on at night? What does your sleep cycle look like? You know, are you wearing blue light blocking glasses at night? Are you wearing a sleep mask at night? Are you, what are you doing to help optimize your sleep? And what does your sleep quality look like? Do you have sleep apnea? These are questions that I start to ask in my head. Are you exposed to mold? We know that HPA axis dysfunction or, or this kind of condition of adrenal hypofunction is associated uh, oftentimes with mold exposure. And to where, you know, the brain is not able to communicate properly to the adrenals to get the energy up and mitochondrial dysfunction, the mitochondria aren't working right. And that can lead to, you know, this sort of pattern that we'll see on, on labs. So those would be the questions I would be asking there. And um, I know for myself, when I had irritable bowel, and I was actually living in a moldy home back when I was uh, in, in undergrad. I, and I had orthostatic hypotension. My blood pressure would be, I mean, sometimes 90 over 50. And why was that? It was because I was under a lot of stress. I was living in mold and I had gut issues, right? So once I, I resolved those issues, I felt significantly better and everything has balanced out and regulated. And so, um, so we got to get to the root cause, but yeah, I was craving salt all the time. Salt was like my best friend. Uh, back then, it was like I always needed it. So that can be a temporary crutch. 
um, taking some some good salt, you know, throughout the day and whatnot, but we really want to get to the root cause. Yeah, exactly. When I read this question, I'm like, mm, I'm wondering, putting sea salt constantly in water, coffee, I've never tried it in coffee, but anyway, that made me think, what's going on? Why is this person craving sugar? I mean, sugar, salt. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like you mentioned, it, this person may be under a lot of stress and and or maybe she feels like she needs to supplement with salt because her blood uh, her blood pressure is kind of low but really getting into the root cause of why this is happening is very very important and just you know potassium and sodium have an inverse relationship so it makes sense that it, as she as she increases the 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 sodium when we increase sodium potassium levels uh will go down but it's an interesting uh point with this person um so one thing that i would suggest too when you are eating is just wait make sure that you see the source of sodium we do need sodium and sodium occurs uh, naturally occurs in our foods you know in our vegetables in our um <clears throat> fruits etc but we also need to look at the sources of potassium you know less if you're feeling it's also really important to make sure that you're you're not because that balance is so, so, so important for us to have that electrolyte balance so that we won't have, you know, symptoms and a desire to be eating all this salt, et cetera. Yeah, 100%. So, yeah, that would definitely be what we'd want to look at. So I would recommend further evaluation. Again, reach out to Dr. Yvonne. She can run labs that can help determine what are some of the root cause factors or even just a questionnaire that can help you understand Perhaps it is just a stressful circumstance, bad sleep hygiene. It could be something that could be a quick fix like that. Could be something a lot more, you know, in depth like mold or parasites or something along those lines that you may need some additional uh, help and guidance and coaching with. So reach out to Dr. Yvonne about that. Dr. Yvonne at drjockers.com. Let's go to the next question. This is from Daniel on Instagram. I what I'm sorry, I saw a study that showed that erythrodol causes heart disease and stroke. I know you have erythrodol in some of your recipes. What do you think is a good replacement? I'm glad this question was run. So please tell us all about it. So erythrodol is a sugar alcohol, okay, and you know it doesn't impact your glycemic, uh, it doesn't it doesn't impact your blood sugar and your insulin levels in the same way that sugar does. Okay. And it's, it's, there's questions about how much it impacts, um, but it's lower calorie than sugar. It's, um, you know, basically sugar alcohols, your body really doesn't digest well. So the main side effects from main side effect from erythritol is really more of a digestive issue. Some people are able to digest it just fine. Other people get gas, bloating, things like that. But for the, for the family of sugar alcohols, xylitol is in there as well. Erythritol is considered to be a more tolerable one. People tend to have a better response with erythritol than some of the other sugar alcohols, mannitol, xylitol, um, anything with an OL ending at the end is going to be an alcohol, you know, in this, this case is a sugar alcohol. So it's not like ethanol, which is, you know, um, your typical alcohol that really affects the liver. So from that perspective, it's good. And then Here's the thing. There was a study that was done. I'm trying to think of what the journal was, um, but we have a detailed article on this, and we went through the through the um, the study 
that had it linked to, you know, erythritol. So they found high blood erythritol levels in individuals that had metabolic disease, heart attack, stroke, things like that. And um, the issue here was that there was an association. And a lot of times it's, it's unfortunate, but, but so much, so many times the media, um, they lump correlation with causation, right? So if something is correlated with something else, they will say that it's causing it, particularly if it fits a certain narrative that they want. Now, that's exactly what happened here. And unfortunately, somehow the actual study, the scientists actually lumped correlation with causation. You would expect a lot better. I don't have as, you know, I would expect better from the media, but, you know, the media can twist all kinds of things. Whereas from scientists, they should really know better. And then for it to get through peer review was really crazy because what happens is, when somebody has a metabolic disease, they're not able to clear their blood sugar very effectively. So that's the job of insulin. Insulin comes out, takes sugar, um, and brings it to cells to get the sugar molecule, the glucose, into the cell where it can be used for energy. However, if we keep increasing our blood sugar and increasing our insulin, we end up, over time, the insulin is, is not as effective as a key going in the door to open the cellular door to get the sugar in. And so now we need more and more insulin. And we develop this condition of insulin resistance. Well, when the sugar molecules are elevated in, when we have elevated blood sugar and insulin resistance, there is a pathway where the sugar, it's called the pentose 5-phosphate pathway, I believe. Um, and uh, this pathway takes, it's called the yeah, pentose phosphate pathway, PPP pathway. It's a metabolic pathway parallel to glycolysis to breaking down sugar for fuel. And so when we're overloading our system with sugar, it will actually turn glucose into erythritol. And so this has been shown in people that are eating a lot of glucose and fructose. Well, well, what do most people do in our society? Unfortunately, right? They're drinking soft drinks, high, full of high fructose corn syrup. They're eating high carbohydrate diets. So this study, um, and I'm trying to think of where, again, where it was published, uh, it was uh, nature, nature medicine. medicine. Yeah, 2022 study in Nature Medicine, and there were three major issues when it came to this study. They didn't look at the erythrol, sorry, the erythritol intake. So they didn't actually measure are these are the people that are in this study consuming erythritol, and not only that, but it wasn't even on the approved sweeteners. So they, you know, they they had people follow. They basically gave them kind of like eat eat this sort of diet right? And they, you know, you can do these things here and they didn't even recommend erythritol. So it's, who knows how much erythritol people were consuming, probably not a whole lot of it. Um, and we, again, we know erythritol is a marker of metabolic dysfunction and an overall unhealthy diet. So ultimately we don't know from that study if erythritol was simply associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular issues or if it caused it, but I would say it probably didn't cause it in this case. Okay. Because again, they weren't told to consume erythritol. That wasn't, you know, a recommended thing in the study, and uh, they didn't measure, in a sense, uh, you know, the the amount of carbohydrates that people were consuming. They didn't really look at a lot of different factors that you would help to understand. All they tested was the overall blood erythritol levels. That's it. So again, you know, some of the takeaways uh, from that study are basically that when our body's under metabolic stress, we're going to produce more erythritol. And so again, 
you know, I think sugar alcohols in general, good thing to study. You know, other studies have looked at erythritol. They've shown that actually they improve and a blood vessel endothelial function. So there's actually studies that show that people get improvements when they're consuming erythritol when it comes to reducing the risk of high blood pressure. You know, the better your endothelial lining of your blood vessels, right? The better, um, the healthier your cardiovascular system is. And so there's there's a study that looked at that. There's a study that showed that it helps protect against glycation and oxidation in the in the bloodstream. So there are certain studies that are very positive on erythritol. And so from my experience and what I've seen, and I think we do need more studies when it comes to all sugar alcohols in general, especially with the increase in the, the amount of sugar alcohols that are being used in our society now because of their, their beneficial effects on blood sugar and people are using them and are losing weight and their metabolic health is improving. We should still be looking at what's happening here. Um, but from my experience at this point, what we do know is some people have digestive complaints when they consume a certain threshold level of sugar alcohols, they get bloated. Um, they get brain fog. They don't feel as good because it's, you know, it's a fuel source for, uh, certain bacteria and perhaps, you know, they have an overgrowth in those bacteria. Now we don't know off the bat who's going to respond good or bad, but if you've had a, if you've had a past history of irritable bowel, IBS, or maybe Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, there's a good chance you're probably not going to do well with erythritol. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't even start with it. Um, if you've not, if you have a, you know, if you've not had a history of a sensitive gut, you may do fine with it. So you can try it out, see how your body responds, see how you feel with it. And if you feel good, that's great. Um, now, other other sweeteners that you can use, monk fruit is a great one. Tends to be really well tolerated. Now, the issue with monk fruit is a lot of people or a lot of companies combine monk fruit with erythritol, right? So again, if you, you haven't had a good experience with erythritol or sugar alcohols in general, try to find a pure monk fruit, which you can if you type in pure monk fruit on Amazon or something like that. Um, that's a good one. Tends to be a little pricier. But, uh, but it, again, very good sweetener, doesn't impact your blood sugar, tastes sweet, and uh, can, be, can be used in a lot of things. And then stevia. Now, stevia, some people will have, there's about 3% of the population that has a ragweed sensitivity. Okay, if you have a tendency to get, for example, spring allergies, ragweeds are higher. Like if you have a lot of spring allergies, you, pro you may have a higher propensity of having a poor response with stevia. It's in the ragweed family. But based on research, it's only 3% of the population that does poorly with stevia, or I should say has a ragweed sensitivity uh, that would cause more inflammation when they consume the stevia. So 97% should be fine as long as you're getting you know, a good quality, ideally organic, uh, pure form of, of stevia. Um, so it's not laced with other sugar alcohols. A lot of times they have maltodextrin in some of them, you know, some, some corn additives and um, you know, and they can also have erythritol sometimes combined with the stevia. So if you're just finding a good pure stevia, um, again, ideally organic, then uh, you shouldn't have uh, any issues unless you're part of that 3%. So kind of have to experiment. Of course, you know, you have things like honey, raw honey, maple syrup, uh, coconut sugar. And so some people do better on those than others. I know for me, I don't do well on, on honey or uh, coconut sugar or syrup or maple syrup. Spikes my blood sugar. I get more acne, things like that. But I do great on monk fruit. Stevia. I can do a little bit of sugar alcohols. If I do too much, I definitely get bloated. Um, I can handle like a certain, certain small amount. Um, so you kind of have to experiment. Like I know for me, stevia monk fruit work great. Like I do fantastic with those. 
can handle a little bit of erythritol. I can handle probably a little bit of honey and stuff like that. But yeah, certainly if I have like, um, you know, even like date, I don't do great with date either. If I have like one of the uh, a protein bar or something like that, that's like date based. It's like I break out with acne, you know, I have like a, a pimple the next day. And so you kind of have to see what, what works best for you. And you can test your blood sugar. You can see if certain sweeteners increase cravings. If you feel, you know, if you, if you consume a sweetener and you feel great and that great feeling can last three, four, five hours, doesn't increase cravings. Um, you know, you don't feel like you're gaining weight when you're, you're consuming that sweetener. You don't feel like you have brain fog. Uh, you know, you don't have acne or, or skin reactions or gut issues. Great. That, you're probably responding well and you probably can handle that sweetener, you know, in a certain dosage, right? You obviously don't want to overdo it with any of these. Um, and so that would be, in a sense, your go-to sweetener. So it's a lot of it's listening to your body. But when it comes to erythritol, and a lot of people got concerned when that study came out and they thought, I just got to throw out all everything with erythritol. This is toxic stuff. That is not true. Okay. It's not toxic. Um, in fact, a good percentage of the population, perhaps two thirds, probably do great with it. Okay. But I will say it's probably about a third of the population uh, that will have digestive disturbances consuming erythritol. So if that's you, it's not the best sweetener for you. Excellent. So I think that uh, sweeteners such as this is very helpful for those that need, need, um, but after that period, say of a diet or special recipes, or if it's not a sugar itself, it's not an issue for you. I would certainly integrate wholesome sources of sugar, like you just mentioned, maple syrup, molasses, uh, dates. They all have other nutrients that help us and give us, you know, very nutritious. Another thing that you can um, add more flavor or sweetness would be like cinnamon. Cinnamon is wonderful to kind of give a little, kind of be more satisfying if there's not a lot of sugar. Um, vanilla, pure vanilla extract is another thing that you can add to kind of, so you will miss that sweetness. Um, maybe adding a little bit more of those sweeter fruits in, in your recipes. And that's another way um, so yeah, this is excellent. And we also remember, have to remind ourselves to always be very careful when someone makes a statement based on research, is that is that research well done and the conclusions uh, do support what was found. So yeah, I, I, I really like that you went over that, that study. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, I think that's all the questions we have. So um, I think that's good for today. Um, but guys, we love these Q and A's. We're getting a lot of great questions from you. We really appreciate it. And again, if you want to have a Q and a question answered, then just, uh, you can obviously, um, send it DM me on Instagram and I can put it up on, uh, you know, a future, uh, Q and A. You can also ask it on YouTube, or you can email us at info at drjockers.com. We appreciate all of you guys being a part of our community. And if you're looking for health coaching, if you're struggling with health issues, hitting a plateau, or you just want some extra guidance, reach out to Dr. Yvonne. She's awesome. Dr. D-R-I-V-O-N-N-E at drjockers.com. And you can also find more information about her on her coaching page. Just go to drjockers.com, uh, go under coaching. You'll find Dr. Yvonne's information there. And a lot of these questions, guys, if you go to drjockers.com, you can actually just type in, we have a search box. You can type in something like erythritol, for example, and we'll actually go through the whole research article on that topic right there. 
um, and you'll be able to see great infographics and all the content and research behind a lot of the answers that we're giving. If you type in Candida, right, we've got uh, you know phenomenal articles on Candida, on SIBO, on parasites, on you know a lot of the topics, intermittent fasting that you guys are asking questions about. So we are here to help answer your questions, whether it's in blog content, infographics, or you know in a in a conversation. Uh, style just like this with a Q&A. So we appreciate you guys being a part of our community and we'll see you in a future show. Be blessed. Well, that's all for this show. And I want to thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today. And if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on or you want to dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. Your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.